The great spiritual writer and theologian Evelyn Underhill has suggested that no Christian escapes a taste of the wilderness. No Christian escapes a taste of the wilderness, she writes, a taste of the wilderness on the way to the promised land. She holds those two things together, that yes, times come when we're cast into the wilderness, when we can't see beyond the wilderness, but it's faith that reminds us, that assures us we're on the way to the promised land and we'll get there one day. No Christian escapes a taste of the wilderness and not even Christ himself, it seems. Of course, there are many kinds of wildernesses. There are personal ones, there are family ones, there are psychological ones. The one that Jesus encounters today has to do especially with temptation. We can all get a taste of the wilderness Because we make our way to the promised land, not as saints, not as perfect angels or superheroes, um, but because we're human. We're ourselves. We're trying to do our best along the way. And so temptations are. And temptations are personal. They were personal for Jesus. No one knows for sure exactly how uh, today's gospel played out. Whether Jesus saw a vision who looked like the devil to him, or whether this was in his own mind, uh, the devil coming to him in some form or another with these accusations, with these temptations, with these suggestions. It's the same way for us. Sometimes the, the tempter, the accuser, the Satan, the devil, the one who will do us wrong and evil comes from outside. But then too often, the devil comes from within. It's that that second-guessing voice, that voice that always wants to bring us down and make us question. One old name for the devil is Satan, but it comes from the Hebrew, the Satan. And it means the accuser, the one who always stands off and points a finger at us. You're not, fill in the blank, enough. That's not our voice. That's not the voice of God. It's the voice of the other one. And so it's that voice that enters into Jesus' head, into his heart, into his dreams, into his presence. We're not sure, but it's real enough for him. Scripture tells us that it comes right after a mountaintop experience for Jesus. We read together last week the story of the transfiguration when Jesus was literally on top of a mountain and there was the appearance of Elijah and Moses and the other disciples and they all of them heard a voice from heaven assuring them all that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, in whom God is well pleased, so listen to him. And then Jesus leaves that and he asks his, his cousin, his, his kinsman, John the Baptist, to baptize him um, so that Jesus can fully enter our humanity to be just like us, flesh and blood, body and bone. And so Jesus is baptized, presumably another spiritual high. But then after that, Jesus finds himself suddenly startlingly alone in the desert, in the wilderness, in the scary place. 
to sharpen his wits, to, to be one with God. He fasts because he's human as well as full of God. But because he fasts, he, he gets hungry like we would. And so the devil appears out of that hunger, that very human need, but that need that becomes something else when it's magnified. And so the devil twists things for Jesus. He uses scripture in and on itself. He says, if you are the son of God, then just command these stones to become loaves of bread. The devil knows that Jesus could do it if he wanted to do it. That Jesus is is God who parted the seas, who made manna fall in the desert and enables Jesus to be born of a human woman. It would just be a little trick for him to turn the stones into bread. And then Jesus doesn't fall for it. So the devil takes him to the high pinnacle of the temple and again taunts him to jump off. The angel's wings will take care of you. You know the scriptures. Jesus doesn't fall for it. And finally, the devil takes Jesus back to another high mountain and promises him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All Jesus has to do is bow down and worship. It's as though the devil were saying, it's really just pro forma, just, just to fulfill the contract and show allegiance. Just, just sign right here. Don't overthink this. But again, for Jesus, he doesn't fall for it. So who knows how tempting it must have been? Because all these things were within the power of what Jesus could do. If it is Jesus' kingdom, then it already belongs to him. But Jesus quotes scripture back at the devil. Jesus too knows his scripture. The Orthodox classic understanding of Jesus is that he has two natures, one that's divine and one that's human. Somehow, through the miracle of God, the two natures are full and complete. And so, at the same time, in a strange way, Jesus is fully human and fully divine. But I love that he's always and everywhere fully human, because that's the part I can relate to. When Jesus seems to um, sort of uh, roll his eyes at someone who asks him for help, or when Jesus is, is a little too short with someone asking a question that doesn't really follow, or when Jesus is tired and wants to go away, I relate to that Jesus, don't you? And so in today's Gospels, Jesus is faced with temptations that seem in some ways very human, but in other ways are uniquely tailored for him. Because as God's son, as God's humanity, Jesus could make them happen. But in the face of each, Jesus makes a choice. He chooses, and he chooses for God. Temptations are a little like that for us, aren't they? They ask us to choose D.T. Niles was a 20th century Sri Lankan theologian, and he suggests that temptation always comes down to making a choice. But it's a choice, he says, between God with a capital G and God with a small g. He writes, the choice between God and every other God is a real choice. Both all make promises, all demand loyalty, And it's possible to live according to each and every. 
if there were no real alternative to God with a capital G, then all humanity would choose God. But there is choice, and therein lies our faith. Against the devil's temptations of the immediate, the present, the readily available, Jesus stays calm and speaks out of his own faith and experience in God. We can imagine how that might be in all the temptations that face us. If one were paying attention to the stock market this week, there are plenty of temptations to to act, to do something, to fix it. The wise investor will look at the long run. As we read and watch and hear of viruses on the move, there are all sorts of temptations to change everything and never leave home. Or we can see that maybe people are washing their hands now in a new way, and that's a good thing. And we can continue to be careful and wise, but also look ahead. There are temptations that are personal to to do this or do that or, or jump this way or jump that way. Or the voice of faith says, sit with it. Listen to what God is saying. Think about the scriptures. Where is the presence of Christ in this moment? Where would Christ call us to move next? On Ash Wednesday, between services, I stood outside the church for a time offering ashes to those who couldn't make it for a scheduled service. And as always, when I look back at the building, I notice something I haven't really noticed before. Maybe you've noticed it, but between the two main doors, there's a a terracotta sort of carving of Jesus. But look at what's underneath Jesus. He's stepping on a kind of dragon-like serpent. That same serpent, the devil, that we talked about or prayed about in the great litany, that same symbol of the devil that runs throughout our history and scripture, of a, of a serpent that by the book of Revelation becomes a whole dragon. But that image is a good one to carry us, not only through Lent, but through our lives. That Jesus stomps on that serpent, that dragon. I don't know how you picture the devil, whether like a serpent or a dragon or a a little red beast with a tail and a pitchfork. But one of the old names for the devil, of course, is Lucifer, which comes from the Latin word for light, which reminds us that so often the devil, the tempter, the accuser comes not in the form of a serpent or a a devil or or a demon or a dragon that would scare us. But so often, the evil one shows up in something that's bright and shiny and attractive. It's like light, but not like light. And that's where the faith of discernment gives us what we need to be able to look at the false lights and find the true light. The season of Lent is a season of practicing our seeing and our listening and our reading and our praying, our walking in faith. Spiritual disciplines help us do that. The church reminds us of those classic spiritual disciplines like like spiritual reading or meditating on scripture or praying in a new way or saving money for a particular cause or project or fasting, giving up a particular thing or, or fasting in a more creative way of avoiding waste or limiting water or plastic or travel. Who knows what it might be for you this season 
Other things might come as daily disciplines to clarify and steady, a daily walk or a time of reading or sitting still or writing in a journal. All of these, really, almost anything, if given over to God, if done with intention and mindfulness and a willingness to be used by God, can become spiritual disciplines to sharpen us and help us know when we're being tempted. They can help us focus. They can bring clarity. And so as we move through this season of 40 days and a few extra Sundays, let Lenten disciplines inform us, shape us, clean us, and prepare us to determine the false lights from the true light and to follow more closely our risen Lord and Savior. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.